Bibles over to Daniel. Last week we spent our time introducing the book, and then tonight we should finish with the first two chapters in Daniel. And I mentioned at the onset that we'll be doing it in 30-minute segments, that after the 30-minute segment you have the opportunity to make any comment or observation or question that you so desire, but from my standpoint, it'll be in 30-minute segments uh, for a particular reason. Last week in introducing Daniel, we noted, uh, uh, first of all, in considering uh, why we look at it and believe that it should be a part uh, of the inspired Word of God, that on the one hand, there's that very strong statement by Jesus in Matthew 24:15, when in talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the consummation of the age, he quotes Daniel verbatim and makes it clear that Daniel spoke of that time. So not only does it have Jesus' endorsement, but Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to persuade the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. And so it is the book to Jews using primarily Old Testament prophecies as showing that Jesus is the Messiah that we look forward to. Well, obviously, at least the vast majority of the Jews of Matthew's day would have to believe already that Daniel was a prophet of God in order for that statement to have any value. And so Jesus, in order for it to have value, he would not only have to believe it himself, but know that his fellow Jews believed it. And in order for Matthew to use it, he would not only have to believe it himself, but in order for it to have value, he would have to know that the fellow Jews accepted Daniel as an inspired prophet. We noted also that when we back up from the New Testament and come to the Greek Septuagint, uh, the Greek Septuagint is that uh, uh, Old Testament canon translated by 70 of the very best Hebrew scholars uh, from uh, Hebrew into Greek between 280 and 250 or 240 B.C. Daniel is a part of the Greek Septuagint. So when these top Jewish scholars translated what we refer to as the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and it was the Greek Septuagint now that is the number one translation in use among the Jews in the days of Jesus and read in multitudes of the synagogues. And so Daniel is incorporated into the Greek Septuagint. Josephus, uh, who is acknowledged as one of the top Jewish scholars and historians of the first century, uh, refers to Daniel as not just a great prophet, but actually one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And so Josephus regards Daniel as one of the greatest prophets among the Jews. Then we noted that from the standpoint of the Hebrew canon, from the very first, Daniel has been a part of the Hebrew canon. In other words, we're saying that all of the Jewish scholarship at the time of Christ and for centuries before Christ and the scholars at his time acknowledged this book as being one that was inspired by God. Having looked at that, we then look at it internally. And in looking at it internally, what we found out, and we will look at and notice as we go through here, remember that one of the marks of the inspiration or that something is from God 
is that it is perfectly harmonious with everything else that God has revealed. And for example, Isaiah said in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, speaking of prophets in his day, if what they said is not in keeping with the law and the prophets, there, there was no light in them. Uh, that if it was, they would be harmonious. Uh, Moses uh, made the statement that anybody that taught them contrary to the law of Moses uh, was to be stoned to death in Deuteronomy 13. Or suffice it to say then, in order for the Jewish scholars to receive it into that canon, it would have had to be, in their judgment, harmonious with all of the materials that they had in the Old Testament. And in order for Christian scholars to continue to have Daniel in the canon, it would have to be, in their judgment, harmonious with all of the material. And that is exactly what we find, that when we look at Daniel, we find that, number one, the, the picture of God in Daniel is the same as the picture of God throughout the rest of the Old and New Testament books. And keep in mind this is uh, a strong thing because the God of Israel is unique in the pagan world. Uh, there is no nation surrounding Israel that is monotheistic. All of them are polytheistic. All of them are in idolatry. All of them have many gods. And it is Israel that stands unique at this time in history with this concept of one God who cannot be represented with an image. And here is Daniel then writing uh, from Babylonian captivity in a pagan empire and with a perfect concept of this one God who is spiritual, who cannot be represented with any idol, and whose character, uh, morality, if those are right words to use, are in perfect harmony with the God that we see in the Psalms, uh, the God that we see in the Law of Moses, the God that was preached by Samuel and the, the other prophets, uh, the same God that Ezekiel and Jeremiah knows, and also the same God that Jesus will reveal and will be talked about in the New Testament. It's in perfect harmony with all of this. And then again, when we look at the life of Daniel, uh, we see an individual that lives in harmony with the Law of Moses. He's obviously one who is well studied in the Law of Moses, uh, not only that, but he is one that actually quotes uh, from other Jewish prophets. Daniel, for example, quotes from Jeremiah concerning uh, the 70-year captivity in Babylon. And it becomes obvious from the context that he regarded Jeremiah as a prophet of God just as he regarded Moses as the great lawgiver for God. Okay, then we're saying that in every way we can examine Daniel, internally, from a standpoint of its concept of God, the morality... The way it fix, fits in to this particular time in history, uh, the uniqueness of the God there, from any way that we can examine it relative to the thinking of Jewish scholars uh, down through the centuries, the attitude of Jesus and scholars like Josephus in the first century, it stands the test as a special book uh, that was received and the material in it written by one that, uh, that is inspired by God. Now, we then ask the question, if the arguments are that strong, why these strong arguments against Daniel uh, down through the centuries? And we noted, first of all, these strong arguments against it have come from the realm of, of unbelief, obviously. Uh, the, the same, uh, obviously, if you reject the resurrection of Christ, 
and you are a thinking, logical person, you're going to have to give some reasons why you reject it. If you reject any book in the Bible, you're going to have to give some reasons. So in the same vein, anybody who is going to reject uh, this material and who is a logical thinking person is going to have to give his reasons for the rejection. Now, the reason that Daniel is singled out by unbelieving scholars above other books in the Old Testament and has been given so much attention down through the centuries is because of the outstanding events in there. I mean, think about the miraculous things that happen within the book itself. I mean, you've got uh, three young men that are cast into a fiery furnace and who come out of it without a scar. You've got Daniel thrown into a lion's den and, and nothing happens. Uh, you have the writing on the wall in the fifth chapter of Daniel where a pagan king is in a drunken feast and uh, there appears this hand out of nowhere with a message that is written on the wall. And then on top of that, you have these uh, fantastic prophecies that are really, as prophecies go, pretty specific uh, in that uh, the, the rise and fall of empires are talked about in such a way that they obviously coincide with the rise and fall of these various empires as we historically look at them. And, and they so perfectly coincide with, with these empires and, and some of these kings that, that either one of two things has to be the case. Either this person that writes it is writing it as a historian, and then it is being redacted later to appear as prophecy, or it's being written as prophecy. But there's no lucky guesses here. Either somebody is doing something dishonest, or you have actual prophecy. And so we want to look at this and, and look at these prophecies and look at the arguments against the book. And I believe that when we're finished, that we'll wind up seeing that, that you can receive it and believe it without any reservation whatsoever in your mind. That all the evidence that could stand behind any body of material will stand behind this. Now, another thing to keep in mind as we examine it that way is the method of examining evidence in the first place. And we've noted this before in talking about the way that, uh, that unbelieving scholars handle the Bible. If you and I were trying to uh, prove uh, that a particular person did something, uh, that here is a truth that we're saying this person did, and so we would say his fingerprints were on the gun, it's his gun, he had powder burns on his hand, uh, he was seen entering the building at a certain time, coming out at a certain time, we would give the motive, and we would build our case. You could actually have enough evidences so there would be no doubt in your mind that that person shot the individual. No doubt whatsoever. Enough that you would convict him uh, to either be executed or, or to spend the rest of his life in jail. But you could go back and look at any one of those evidences and no one of them would convict him. Uh, the fact that his, it's his gun, that doesn't mean he shot the person. The fact that his fingerprints are on the gun, well, so what? It's his gun. You'd expect his fingerprints on it. The fact he had powder burns on his hand, any of those taken by itself, the fact that they saw him go into a building or come out of a building, none of those facts, in fact, no two of those facts would even come close to convicting the person. It's only when you put it all together that you wind up with this ironclad case. In the same vein, as we look at Daniel, and we're going to look at Daniel, 
We're going to look at Daniel uh, from within the context of the book itself, but then we're going to go beyond that. And we're going to look at Daniel just like we look at all the other books in the Bible from the context of the entire Bible and all that's involved. And it is quite different to take a book of the Bible, whether it's Daniel or Matthew or Mark or whatever it may be, take it out here, isolate it from all its companion volumes, isolate it out here, and say, now prove this. That's quite different than leaving it there with all this body of material that interacts and then looking at it. And all works that I have read by unbelieving scholars, they have one thing in common at least. They have several things in common really, but one thing they always do, whether they're talking about Ecclesiastes or Daniel or, or Mark or whatever it is, they want to pull it out, that particular piece of material individually, not allow the other, and then to look at it from that standpoint. Well, by the time they're through, you can get several evidences but none conclusive enough to say, hey, this is proof of the situation. And so we want to look at Daniel from within the context and then also from the standpoint of uh, pulling all our information together. Okay, let's begin now in the, the first chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of the house of his God. Now, let's look at this from the standpoint of, of the information that was supplied us there uh, and our historical records outside the Bible. Historically, can we say that uh, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it? Yes, we can. You can leave the Bible and, and you can go to your archaeological discoveries and your sources outside the Bible and you can show that Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, in the recent war that we had with Iraq, what did we find out about Saddam Hussein so far as his, his heroes? Nebuchadnezzar was his idol, his hero. In fact, we also found out that uh, Saddam was in the process of rebuilding Babylon, and still is, uh, and as a tribute uh, to those great times under Nebuchadnezzar. So was Babylon the great city of the world at this particular time, uh, 600 years before Christ? Yes, historical fact. Was Nebuchadnezzar the king? Yes. Did Nebuchadnezzar lead them in victory against surrounding countries? Yes. Did Nebuchadnezzar come against Judah and besiege Jerusalem? In fact, did he come on several occasions? And did he eventually destroy the city? And the answer is yes. So I'm saying you haven't read anything there that's any different than the historical record outside the Bible. Okay? The king ordered... Ashpenaz, the chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any, physician, any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. 
And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Okay, let's pause here. Historically, as we go back and look at that period of time in history, our question is, is there anything unusual about a king conquering a country and then picking what he considered to be the most intelligent, uh, the most favored individuals uh, to be trained in his language and his literature and then to minister before him? Not at all. Uh, this was in perfect harmony uh, to have this happen. In fact, in a similar vein, for example, we know that uh, after World War II, one of the biggest uh, uh, battles that took place in the intellectual realm was the battle for the German scientist. Uh, we wanted them, and so did Russia. Russia got some of the German scientists, and we got some. But we definitely wanted uh, their scientists. And you would find that uh, if we were conquered by another country, they would definitely be interested in our scientists. And they would want to win them over and get them in and convince them of their way of thinking and teach their philosophy to them in order to use their minds. They would be interested in our top minds in order to use them. In other words, they don't want to come in and wipe everybody out. Their first step would be uh, that to encourage people to believe this philosophy and this way of life. And they would be interested in that. So, is there anything here that is happening that's different than uh, what you would expect or what did happen? Nothing at all. Okay. They're trained for three years. After that, they enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name of Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief uh, uh, official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Well, is this unusual? Based on what you know of the Jews, and based on what you know of the law of Moses, is this unusual that a very devout young Jewish male would purpose in his mind that he was not going to defy himself by breaking the health code of the law of Moses, or he was not going to eat these pagan meats? that had been offered to idols and all? In fact, it would be surprising if it was different, wouldn't it? Uh, surprising if it was different. So what is here is in perfect harmony with secular history and archaeology. It's in perfect harmony with your own common sense and, and what you know about the Jewish people and what you know about the Babylonians at this time. Okay, now it says, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Okay, now, Notice this statement here. Because sometimes, I know for years I think I use this in the wrong way, and I, I still believe it's used in the wrong way by people, uh, where it says God calls the official to show favor and sympathy. Remember with Joseph, uh, similar type statements. Uh, remember God hardening Pharaoh's heart. All right, now the question becomes, did God in some mystical way get into this person's mind and cause them to favor Daniel? Or was it that Daniel, being a godly individual, possessing certain spiritual qualities 
honesty and integrity and things of this nature as a result of being brought up in the law of Moses would simply stand out. I mean, after all, put yourself in the position of the officials. Well, in fact, in your everyday life, if you're in a situation where you're around other people, aren't there those individuals that immediately you like? Why is that? That there are some people that you immediately like them. You, you immediately have a, a good feeling uh, towards them. Well, if they have got certain qualities that you respect. And, and if this person over here seems to show consideration for others, uh, seems to be honest, seems to have a, a high degree of integrity, that just stands out in your mind. Because everybody doesn't have that, do they? I mean, there's not a whole lot of people that are willing to be honest on various matters and, and have a high degree of integrity and, and to be unselfish and concerned about other people. There's just not a lot of that in the world. But where it does exist, it exists among those people who have been influenced by the law of God. I believe that Joseph gained favor because he was a certain type of person as a result of the influence of the law of God. I believe that Daniel gained favor because he was a certain type of person as a result of the influence of the law of God. And even as they are educated, uh, it says, and let's come on down in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding in all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the time set by the king, this is in verse 18 now of chapter 1, to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters, in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, he's very impressed with them. They've all been to school. They're all intelligent. But these stand out as somebody that is, he's very impressed with, uh, over and above all the, the others. There's a number of things that I thought of as I read that. And one, this is a, one of my favorite passages on the, the law of God, uh, over in Psalms 119, beginning with verse 97. Speaking of the law of God, and the impact it can have on a human mind when it's read and studied and, and meditated on, and the benefits that you can derive from it. Uh, in verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statues. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I may obey your word. I have not departed from your laws. For you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate every wrong way. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. In verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Okay. Daniel couldn't help but be wiser 
more enlightened, have a better understanding of the world he was in as a result of his knowledge of the law of Moses and the way he'd been brought up. In the same vein, uh, when it comes to life today, try and think of the sources that you're in contact with out there. And what if that's all you had to interpret life? It is the source. I, know I was reading a, an article in the magazine today, the Parade magazine that's in the Sunday publication. And one of the feature articles was by James Mishner, who's a, an outstanding author of our day. And he finds hope for our society. Uh, his comment was that if we're going to have, we're going to accomplish anything, he recommends that the young of our day read Plato and, and Socrates and be aware of some other materials like this. Well, that was interesting to me uh, from his standpoint. I took a philosophy class many, many years back, and uh, I was in the Marine Corps station in Okinawa, and this was an off-campus extension course for the University of Maryland. And I took a philosophy course, and in the course, I had to read The Republic by Plato and study the philosophy of Socrates. All I got out of it was that Socrates had a lot of questions that he couldn't answer. I also got enough out of it to know that Plato, although he looked up to Socrates, was embarrassed about the fact that Socrates was a homosexual. There was nothing about the life or the teaching of Socrates that I found appealing or that gave me any answers to it. There was nothing there that would have said, this is definitely right and that is definitely wrong. There is nothing there that would have even hinted at why I even exist or what my purpose is. Uh, on this life, or whether there's a possibility of any hope, or there's any definite right or wrong, there is nothing there. And you know what? He's right. Socrates and Plato is the best the world has to offer. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these names that you've heard, but most of you have never read, and most others have never read, and I haven't read all of their stuff and all, and, and what I've read have not been that turn, turned on. That is the best the world has. It's no accident that in every single solitary generation, millions and millions and millions and millions of people have been turned on by the information in this book. It's no accident that all over the world right now, millions of people are studying this, and not even hundreds are studying Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle and some of those guys. They really, in the estimation of the people that have come in contact with that material, simply don't have any answers. And I'm saying that just as you and I today have been able to experience for ourselves and see in our world that the world has said, hey, this is better than anything that Socrates ever thought about saying. It's better than anything that Plato ever thought about writing. It's enlightening. It's based on the law of God. I think in the same vein that Daniel being there with all those pagan philosophers and the pagans with their, their idolatrous belief, their concept of morality, that Daniel must have stood out like a bright light in a dark cave. And the same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar tied right into it. I believe Joseph stood out in the same way. I believe Job stood out in that way in his day. I believe Noah stood out in that way. And I believe that's what Jesus would have every Christian do. Uh, is to stand out. And when I look at this, I learn something else as far as an application of you and I today. We live in a dark 
society that is becoming more and more pagan, and we scratch our brains uh, for better ways to, to reach others with the good news of salvation in Christ. And if Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego can stand out before a pagan idolatrous king in such a way that he recognizes that what they have to say is ten times over more impressive than all the others. I believe in the same vein today. I don't know why the difficulty would be. We just simply need more Christians who are willing to put the teaching of God to practice in our lives, who are willing to invest more time studying this so that we have on the tip of our tongue the answers to the problems of life that are dealt with uh, in the Bible. And I think Daniel stood out for that reason uh, in the same way anybody could stand out today. Okay, now into the second chapter. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had dreams. He's troubled. He could not sleep. So the king summoned all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live in forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have to cut you to pieces, and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Does that sound strong? In this part of the world, what happens when you don't tell Saddam what he wants to hear? What happens if you differ with Saddam on any point? No different, is it? No, no different, really. Uh, this is what you have when you have a dictator on the throne. Okay, they do not have the answers. Okay, and that's, that, that's obvious there. And, and they're really upset with the fact that he wants them to tell the dream, right? And so what do they do? They respond and they say, hey, nobody's ever asked this of a magician. You know, we're good at interpreting dreams, but tell us the dream. Give us something to work with. But oh, Nebuchadnezzar says, no. I know you can work up an interpretation. You tell me the dream, and then I can be confident uh, of the interpretation. So they say in verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asked. Okay, word gets, he orders her execution. Word gets back to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego concerning this. And so now word has got back to them. Daniel prays to God, and then we have this encounter beginning in verse 24. Daniel goes to the official, tells him not to execute the men of Babylon. He says, take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. In verse 27, Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions you pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Okay, he tells him about the dream in verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head was of pure gold, its chest was arms and silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs iron, its feet partly clay and partly baked clay, and while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like the shaft of a threshing floor. 
The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power, might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Verse 39. After you another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next a third kingdom will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Okay, then he comes on in verse 44, says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring it to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Okay, now, we're going to pause with that for tonight, but think on that statement there. What about it historically? Amazing, isn't it? Because when we go back and historically, we look at this period and, and we can see that, yes, Babylon is the great world power. After Babylon, Medo-Persia would come on the scene. They would defeat Babylon, but they would be inferior to Babylon. They would never attain to the greatness of Babylon. After Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great would come along and, and conquer the entire known world of that day. And then after that, Rome would come. Rome would be the greatest empire the world has ever known. And it was in the days of the Roman Empire that Jesus is born. Christianity has its birth in Judea. All of these other empires collapse and fall. Christianity fills the entire world and to this day exists as the most numerous and the greatest influential force in the world today. Right, now, not only do you have something fantastic there with Daniel living at this time, but let's say that the unbeliever that has tried to deal with Daniel is right. That Daniel is written in the 2nd century uh, B.C., somewhere around 164. First of all, he's acknowledging it was written before Christ, right? Now, his statement can be totally discredited, but let's, let's give it to him. He says it's written in 164, and let's look at this statement. We have the Babylonian, we have the Medo-Persian, we have the Grecian. In 164, Rome still has not conquered Judea. Christianity doesn't exist. Nobody has heard of it. It would be Rome would still have to conquer Judea. Jesus would still have to be born. And that little bitty insignificant people would have to encompass the entire world. I'm saying you still have something that could not even be explained. And yet the only argument that has ever been given on Daniel by the unbeliever is that it was written about 164. And the reason it is so accurate in so many ways is because this material is history that's already happened. But yet we've just looked at one prophecy and we find out that when we look at all of that prophecy, 
it still has material in it that you could not foresee or know in 164. And again, we just say that, being accommodating, because all our evidence, before we're through, we'll place it exactly where it is in the Bible, and that is in 600 years down to 500 some odd years before the birth of Christ. Let's conclude our study for this afternoon, and we'll pick up next week uh, in the latter part of the second chapter of Daniel. Anybody with any uh, observations or questions concerning anything that we studied this afternoon?